Blog Talk Radio. Quarters. Security condition three. Thank you. Security three, sir. General quarters three. Intruder alert. GQ three. Intruder alert. Well, you know what that means. Welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, the podcast, some say, with more celebrities than the inauguration. And I am your host and cruise director, Madam Perry, or you can call me Jennifer Perry, or in England, J-Mod. Uh, but I'm just happy to have you here. So first of all, uh, I have to thank you once again, because uh, everyone that has been listening to the podcast and subscribing and downloading and sharing with your friends, you've really you've really honored me because you've making the numbers go up, which enables me to keep it going, to get sponsors on some nights, and to continue to get great guests like we've been having all year and like we have coming up soon, and we have tonight, of course. Um, just thanks to you. I met a woman last week who told me she had heard about my podcast uh, about six months ago, and now she says she's caught up except for the last three. She started back at the beginning and began listening every one to get caught up in order, and, and I was just overwhelmed. So uh, that's nice. Thank you. You know, And remember, you can always download uh, for free, subscribe for free, and download for free here on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, uh, and a, probably a few other places that I don't even know about. I find more every day. I think there's one called Pod Fanatic. You can download it for free on there. Whatever you use to listen to podcasts or to, or to uh, subscribe, so you can check them out when you have time. Last night's guest was Ricky Bird, and if you listen, you know he's a he's a Hall of Famer, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, which he uh, joined that institution or was made a member when he was touring with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. He was a guitar player. And he also played with Ian Hunter from uh, Mod the Hoople and uh, just about every other famous person you know of. But he has been sober for over 30 years, and he has a foundation called Clean Getaway, which is the name of his newest CD, and it's very inspiring. So go to to the website, cleangetaway.nyc, and uh, it's a great CD. His voice is on point. The music is great. I was uh, concerned that an entire CD with the theme of – Recovery, uh, alcohol and drug abuse and recovery would just get monotonous. However, this guy keeps it interesting. Every song is fresh, like some rock, some Americana, some blues. Uh, he even takes you to church on a couple of songs. Very, very good. And the more you buy from him, the more he can afford to give to, uh, to some of the treatment facilities that he visits. Also, last week, don't forget, uh, Doug Stinson was on here last week. His book is called Downstairs at the White House, and it's written about... This is one of the funniest shows we've had. Doug Stinson was writing about when he was 17 years old, accidentally got 
a job as an intern, or got an internship in the White House, and this was during the Nixon administration, which gave him a ringside seat to Watergate. And uh, as he told us stories about uh, walking out, out of a conversation with Jim Brown because he thought Jim Brown wasn't Jim Brown uh, about mistaking Pat Nixon, whom he says is a very nice, which is a very nice lady, but mistaking Pat Nixon for uh, a maid in the White House one evening, accidentally serving. Uh, Coke to the chairman of PepsiCo. Yeah, he's got a lot of good stories, but at the same time, witnessing all these things up. So uh, that, that's been an extremely popular episode, so check that book out as well. And tonight, even more so, you know, if you're, um, it's hard to keep up sometimes. Our, our demographic of listeners here tends to go back and forth a bit. And uh, sometimes if I have uh, some younger singer or author, it might skew a bit younger. But most we stay in the middle between 35 and 65 years old. And a lot of people, I know especially my friends, we grew up watching Star Trek and reading science fiction. I was such a big science fiction fan. Uh, I read everything, Ray Bradbury and, and Robert A. Highland, Isaac Asimov. I just couldn't get enough in Star Trek. And, you know, when I was growing up, we thought that by now, and I think Todd Rundgren even has a song about this, that by now we thought we'd have a house on Mars, we thought we'd have a flying car, and Rosie the Robot, like on the Jetsons, would be doing our housework. And we really thought, we really, really believed that this is what the future would be for us at this time. Um, not quite there yet, and yet more has been discovered than we think, yet there's still more to be found. My guest tonight, he's the news director at Alabama Public Radio and the author of uh, Trailblazing Mars, NASA's Next Giant Leap, and also uh, Final Countdown, NASA and the End of Space Shuttle Program. He's known globally for covering 103 NASA space shuttle missions, uh, the Challenger and Columbia shuttle accidents, and the construction of the International Space Station. He's Spent uh, over 14, oh, I think, uh, 14 years covering NASA for NPR, eight for the USA Radio Network. Uh, he's an award-winning journalist and very fascinating man. I am delighted to bring him here to the Genie Bottle. Genie Bottle, I guess that's also a call back to uh, the space program. Uh, Pat Duggins. Pat, welcome to Madame Perry's Salon. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. It's great to be Come. with you. Well, I'm glad. Come on, come on and sit down. I don't know if you heard, but you know, back in the very beginning of, of uh, Madame Perry's Salon, someone said that it reported that it looked like the inside of Jeannie's bottle. So that's when people will come in and just, you know, some people that have been here more than once have their own cushion to sit on. And I was thinking, yeah, the Jeannie's bottle of I Dream of Jeannie, that's also a callback to an early show about the space program. With, uh, oh, absolutely. In fact, there's, there's a restaurant there that the actors would uh, talk about, like, oh, let's go to Bernard Surf, you know, and the actors would then go off to Bernard Surf. Well, when I was covering the space program for NPR, there actually is a Bernard Surf at uh, in Cocoa Beach, and it's it's a popular haunt. And in addition to having, you know, uh, you know, restaurant fare and a bar and all that sort of stuff, on the wall they would have sketches by cosmonaut Alexei Lyanov, the first man to do a spacewalk. And he later commanded the, uh, the Apollo-Soyuz uh, mission where we would link one of our Apollo moon capsules with a, a Soyuz uh, craft from Russia. So it's a, it was a popular place to go. We certainly enjoyed it. And I guess, you know, Larry Hagman and Barbara Eden did during I Dream of Genie. So there you go. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, we're going to think about it. Start back to talking about Mars. And I know you also mentioned – you also bring this up, actually, at the beginning of your book, Trailblazing Mars, is uh, our first or, you know, people's first, I guess, impressions or fascinations or fantasies or ideals about Mars and about space uh, 
There were uh, some of the, the, the Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. the Worlds. Uh, from that all the way up to my favorite Martian, what, do you think we were just exploring a fantasy and, and seeing what we wanted to see or what we were hoping was out there? Well, actually, uh, it goes back even further than that because, like, you know, my, my wife's father was a uh, – he was an English teacher in Boston. And, uh, uh, you know, when, when he passed on, we inherited many of his books, and that included some original first editions by Edgar Rice Burroughs. If you ever saw the, uh, the, the movie John Carter – uh, it didn't work out so well, although Jason yeah. Momoa may, you know, he may get more work as Aquaman, you know. But 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 anyway, uh, those those were uh, the, the same man who wrote Tarzan. I mean, you know, me Tarzan, you Jane uh, also wrote about John Carter, who apparently was a gentleman farmer or something like that in Virginia, and somehow he wished himself upon the planet Mars, which the inhabitants call Barsoom, and there's all this kind of you know uh, uh, adventures going on there, and beautiful princesses and evil, you know, evil guys and all this sort of stuff, and flying machines and stuff. Well. That got NASA into trouble during its earliest exploration of Mars because they, back in the 60s, they were sending spacecraft to go off. They were robotic spacecraft, no people on them. And they were, uh, you know, checking out what was going on on Mars. And the thing about it was, all of these people apparently had read Edgar Rice Burroughs, too, because they were expecting, you know, lush vegetation and exotic uh, princesses and, you know, evil bad guys. I think one was named Matai Shang or something like that. And when the Mariner spacecraft got to Mars, it was dead as a doornail. I mean, people were actually talking about cutting <laughs> off the space program because it didn't live up to the, the books that we read or our grandparents read when they were kids, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs and stuff. <laughs> That's not what it's supposed to look like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all, all dusty and gross. I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah, that's, wait a minute. Somebody made a wrong turn. This is not right. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, and then it went on to some more lighthearted things with uh, Ray Walston as as my favorite Martian. Um, mm-hmm. It was with, with uh, Ray Walston and Bill Bixby, who was just, uh, what Ray Walston was just a Martian that just kind of, well, he had a, landed accidentally and couldn't get a back and all the Adventures he had on Earth, and then there's what Marvin, the Martian. Oh, oh my Disney. God! Uh, uh, w- 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 you're you're making me very angry. Yeah, I had I had a, I had a coworker <laughs> back in Florida who loved Mar- Martian uh, Mar- Marvin so much. I mean, on she would wear the shirts, she would have like decals of him all over her motorcycle. Just a huge fan. And when uh, when NASA uh, sent its first two rovers to Mars, it was those two rovers were just known as Mur A. And Mer B, it was like you know Mars Exploration Rover A and B, and everybody's like, man, that's really boring. You know, what do we do? And then I guess somebody who was a little bit maybe too young to have read Edgar Rice Burroughs, but they were uh, old enough to be able to appreciate you know uh, Marvin the Martian and then Duck Dodgers in the 23rd and a half century. They came up with these. It, 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 it was competing, uh, competing embroidered patches. One team from I don't even know how it worked out. But it was like uh, one of the rovers was like Duck Dodgers, and there was Daffy Duck on the embroidered crew patch that all of those people who were controlling that particular rover as it was making its way to Mars, they would have Donald, they would have Daffy Duck. And the other group, they would be the lucky ones uh, with Marvin the Martian. And uh, so uh, that, that, that's sort of, you know, kind of the way it went, you know, in, in terms of, you know, what, what the, Mar- the, the rovers were called until they physically landed. And then there was uh, a young lady, actually, she, I believe she was like an orphan from Lithuania or something like that. And she entered a contest to finally give the two rovers their names, which was spirit and opportunity. But for those of us in the press who had followed it, you know, from the very beginning, I still have the T-shirts. 
I still have the patches with Marvin the Martian and Duck Dodgers on it. So for us, it's kind of like, okay, we'll we'll let we'll let the little girl, you know, have her fun with spirit and opportunity. But as far as we're concerned, I mean, it's those those classic Looney Tunes characters. That's 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 kind of what lit our candle. <laughs> and and by the way, folks, and there there are pictures of these embroidered patches, and. Pat's book, Trailblazing Bars. So <laughs> I like how you had to put it right there. So, oh, okay. And they were they look good, very official. Oh, I had to go but, to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory because those those were limited edition patches. And I said, hey, listen, I need to photograph them for the book because you know I'm 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 a radio guy, and even though we're moving into you know the world of videos and and then photographs for for radio stories now with the internet and social media, uh, it was still kind of new to me when I was you know working on these two books. Oh, I have to have uh, illustrations as well, and you you couldn't find those embroidered patches with with Daffy Duck and, and Marvin the Martian anywhere. I mean, I even went on eBay. I did everything. Turns out the Jet Propulsion Laboratory had them, but they treated them like the crown jewels. So it's kind of like, okay, we'll, we'll send you a couple just so that you can photograph them. But afterwards, if you don't, we're going to come after you and, and beat you with our pocket protectors or whatever they're going to do. But, uh, yeah, so uh, we, 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 we got the photos, and nobody got hurt, and uh, my publisher was happy, and and, and there you go. I'll bet. I'm surprised they didn't have you what blindfolded and taken someplace secret to be able to photograph and then blindfold you again and lead you hey, out. I, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd have done it because it's, it's it's like one of those you know it's one of those nostalgia things that I grew up with. I really wanted to include in the book. And, and getting back to my favorite Martian, I mean you know uh, just just north of uh, I'm, I'm currently living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but just to the northeast of us is Birmingham. And when we visit our family there, there's this little bitty vintage toy store that has like the old fashioned model kits that you used to put together like little plastic ones you put them together like you know three pieces and it's done and they had the original spaceship from my favorite martian so instantly i'm in absolutely just you know enthralled with nostalgia because i, I grew up with that program myself way before i started covering the uh, the space program professionally so uh it was it was a neat show a neat bit of nostalgia and uh they just they just don't make tv shows like that anymore no honestly they don't um and which is, you know, of course, the, um, it's hard you know, trying to remember things like uh, the, the things that they put in there. Like, what uh, a woman got. Uh, there was a woman, a friend of uh, the, the nephew, played by Bill Bixby, who had a crush mm-hmm. on Uncle Martin. So she makes him these desserts and cakes, and he can't touch them because they're polyunsaturated fat and it'll poison him. Yes, I remember and, that one. Uh, oh my gosh. He do. Oh, I do, and it's interesting because, like you know, covering covering this because I, I first started covering the space program, uh, frankly, uh, back when the Challenger accident occurred back in 1986. Uh, no one was covering shuttle launches at that time uh, journalistically because they, it was like you know a plane leaving you know Birmingham Regional Airport. I mean, like you know they go up, they come down, they go up, they go down, and all of a sudden one blows up. And nobody's there, so I'm, I'm the first one to grab a set of news car keys and a and a recorder and hop in our 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 station's news car. It was this rickety old Toyota Tercel, and I and I'm like maybe 30 miles away from the Kennedy Space Center at that point, and I literally follow the mushroom cloud out to the Cape as that first shuttle disaster is taking place. The parts are still coming down when I got there. But oh. once NASA got flying again and everything was you know getting back to normal, you'd get all kinds of you know you know, hangers on and celebrities that would just kind of like show up because the shuttle was really considered to be a really great show. Um, you know, and one of them getting back to, you know, 1960s sci-fi was if you remember lost in space, 
uh, June Lockhart shows up. I mean, Maureen Robinson, the mother of the, uh, the Robinson you know, family mm-hmm. and, and Dr. Smith and the robot. So she's there, uh, you know, talking about, you know, just following the space program and everything. And at one point I bumped into uh, Jacques Cousteau, who was there. He was there with the invitation of one of the astronauts because they were going to be doing some scans from space of the Earth's oceans. And um, earlier you made a comment about, you know, the, the, the reference about, oh, we'd be on the surface of planet Mars by now. Had a nice talk at, at a shuttle launch with Arthur C. Clarke, the fellow that wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, with Hal the Computer and everything. Yes, and he, yes. absolutely, he absolutely bemoaned the fact that, you know, by the year 2000, we were like 2002, 2003 when I met him, and he said, oh, man, by now it's like, you know, all these kids think, you know, we'd be doing Star Trek and Warp Drive and we'd be living on Alpha Centauri and stuff like that. And we were just – we had not even really – uh, finished the International Space Station by that point. I mean, we had some parts up, but even that's not going. So even going back to the moon was just, you know, so far away from what reality was in terms of the space program. And, and you know, Mr. Clark was pretty bummed out about it, but, you know, we, you know, we, we, may, eventually, we may eventually get there, but it'll, it'll be baby steps. Mm-hmm. Well, then to, get, then to take us up to... Uh, your first book is Final Countdown, NASA and the End of the Space Shuttle Program. And then your more recent one is Trailblazing Mars, NASA's Next Giant Leap. And Mars, you know, has come back into the conversation a lot more in the last, well, probably the last, uh, I don't know, five to ten years. But let's um, try to start with where we first began interested in the space program. And I get the feeling it was a little bit of we weren't as into it until we thought that the Russians might get ahead of us. And then we oh, had absolutely. To catch up. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's interesting now because, uh, you know, when you talk to what are, what are the driving forces of us going to Mars? Well, right now it's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, I mean, the head of Tesla and the head of, uh, of Amazon. Uh, and, and they, you know, they're billionaires. They may actually be able to do it. But as, as you say, back in the day, uh, it, was all, it was all Cold War politics between us and the Russians. In fact, uh, here's, here's, here's a bit of trivia for you. There's, there's a school of thought out there that if uh, President Kennedy – had not been tragically assassinated in 1963, we may not have landed on the moon uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, the money, you know, landing on the moon after Kennedy's death basically became his retirement gold watch. In other words, we've got to do this one for JFK because he, you know, he made the speech at Rice University. We choose to go to the moon in this mm-hmm. decade and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so there, there's that. But also, at one point, as I understand, uh, JFK was actually thinking about abandoning the moon idea himself. And just working with the Russians on some kind of a joint space station because he was afraid that the cost would balloon, which it did under Project Apollo after after he was assassinated. So it's uh, it's just kind of funny how things work out. But but back in the day, I mean, the Russians and Nikita Khrushchev wanted to, you know, he's he's taking his shoe and pounding it on the, on the podium. We will bury you, Americans. Blah blah blah. And the the Russians wanted to do everything first, and that included launching stuff into space. So they they launched Sputnik which, you know, I believe that was like 1957, I believe, when that went up. And even people who were working for NASA at the time would go outside and tune their radios, and they would hear the, the ominous beep, beep, beep from this Russian satellite as it passed over Washington, as it passed over New York, as it passed over L.A. and San Francisco. And Americans were just terrified. This was like, oh, my gosh, you know, science fiction stuff, you know, death rays from Mars and stuff. And then when we finally started launching human beings, uh, the, the Russians, you know, they, they wanted to – they wanted to go ahead and be first, and so they uh, they launched Yuri Gagarin, who um, 
Well, that's that's a story in and of itself. Because if you're if you're flying a, if you're flying any kind of an aircraft, you don't get cr- a credit for setting any kind of a speed record unless you actually land physically inside the craft that you're in. And Gagarin did not do that. He became the first human being to be in orbit, but he ejected from his capsule just before it touched down because the folks in Moscow weren't sure he was going to survive if he stayed inside. So they didn't tell anybody about that until years and years and years later. So there was a lot of a lot of cloak and dagger, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of you know try to one-up, one-upsmanship, that sort of thing. There were people in Congress who said after the Apollo 8 mission where they took the, the great picture of the, earth, of the moon rise over the, uh, over the earth rise, rather, over the moon, they were saying, hey, we beat the Russians to the moon. Let's go ahead and just cut, cancel Project Apollo and forget about letting Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. So it just, it, there, was, there was politics aplenty going on at that time, and it sort of made things interesting, I guess, for one, on one side, but for NASA on the other, uh, probably, you know, pretty frustrating because they just they just wanted to do science mm-hmm. by the way if you're listening to us live tonight and you want to talk, you want to talk with pat duggins uh the number is six four six seven one six nine nine two two that's six four six seven one six nine nine two two and i think we got a call coming in here right now from the west coast good evening and welcome to madam perry salon hi it's jennifer Irwin. Hi, Jennifer Irwin. Oh, Pat Duggins. This is uh, author Jennifer Irwin and uh, and my client. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> good to be you. How are you? I'm going to be talking to you tonight. <laughs> I'm good. Um, we were just I in Birmingham a few weeks ago. Yeah, we were just, I once, my roommate in boarding school, her father used to head up NASA Space Center, and her brother was an extravehicular specialist and went on multiple missions. Wow. Um, do you recall do you yeah, recall the specific name? David his name was David Lowe. And I remember watching Good Morning America when I was working in New York City and they were singing to him at the space shuttle when he was out. But I have all the patches from the different missions he went on. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, one time, uh, let's see. One time, my wife was, uh, you know, my wife kind of puts up with the fact that I covered space the way I did. Uh, one of one of David's mission was STS-43, and it was uh, it was going to pass over Orlando at night at a certain point, like 4:30 in the morning. And so my wife Lucia, she was like, "Oh, Pat, let's get up and go watch the shuttle." She was trying to like, you know, encourage me or at least tolerate my my interest in space. <laughs> and so uh, we we go we we take a couple of lawn chairs and we go out to Lake Eola. 4.30 in the morning, it's pitch black, and we set up our chairs, and there goes the shuttle. It looks like a small moving star going overhead. But unfortunately, there's a kind of critter in, in, in Central Florida known as a fire ant. And unfortunately, oh, Lucia no. had placed her oh, chair on a fire ant mound. Nobody got hurt, but she certainly felt some creepy crawlies, and we had to beat a quick uh, a retreat. But we did get to see uh, oh, David no. Lowe and his, and his, and his crewmates uh, going overhead inside oh. Space Shuttle Atlantis. Oh, I can't believe you actually have heard of him. It's, you know, um, it was really interesting to find out the really super secret details that, you know, like they wear diapers when they're sitting in the launch pad. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, we've got we've got we have female astronauts to thank for that because, like, you know, before and I I don't want to get too graphic, Jennifer, but but before uh, the uh, the kind of well. Uh, uh, 
well, uh, devices that they would use to allow astronauts to go to the bathroom, uh, you know, uh, before they got out of their spacesuits, were incredibly uncomfortable for the men because for the men, uh, they would wear, you know, frankly, what looked like kind of like a, a contraceptive with a tube on it, and it, it was really uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, I wrote yeah. an article one time for the uh, the biggest news magazine in China, and they were uh, they were launching the first female uh, uh, Chinese astronaut uh, called a Taikonaut. And uh, so they said, hey, would you mind writing a story about, like, you know, women in space and stuff? And one of the things that I found that because of the, you know, the, the, the obvious uh, anatomical differences between, you know, a male astronauts and female astronauts, they couldn't use the same kind of uh, accommodation on female astronauts as they did on, on uh, male astronauts. So that's when they started using the diapers because those work better oh, for the ladies. Now, oh, now, the gen- now the gentlemen are saying, whoa, wait a second, look at this. I mean, there's no discomfort. This is great. So they started advocating for the Grampers, too. And so all of a sudden, pretty soon, everybody on space missions were using the same thing. And we have the lady astronauts to thank for that. So uh, I'm sure all the male astronauts are taking their their hats or their, their helmets off or something for that. I must have been the only person to ever asked David, like, what do you, like, do you, do you have to just hold it when you're sitting? Because they're there for hours and hours. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm always like, where's the closest bathroom? You know, yeah, so that was kind of funny. But um, his father was a very intimidating man and ended up um, founding the RPI Aerospace, mm-hmm. called, like the Center for Aerospace Studies. And he died of cancer a long time ago. But going to down the hallway to his office when my roommate was trying to get money, um, you know, when we were in high school, and there were just mission, like all the different shuttles that he had worked on were in cases, glass cases. I mean, it was really cool. It was a very interesting time. Oh, absolutely. In fact, there was there was another mission that he did one time that uh, well before before the Challenger accident, uh, he uh, there was a uh, was it was a payload of experiments that were left up in orbit called the long duration exposure facility it was about the size of a school bus and when challenger blew up they had to basically leave that experiment package stranded in space and it was huge and it was starting to fall into the atmosphere so one of the first missions they sent after they resumed shuttle launches featured you know david Lowe. uh it was sts 32 and so uh like you know the one time when lucia and i went out and we tried to find the one star moving high overhead and that was the shuttle well, uh-huh. David, uh, David's mission, uh, finding the, uh, the, the long-duration exposure facility, was especially cool because you had the shuttle chasing an equally large object. So if you caught it at just the right time, and I did, it was like two stars, one chasing oh, the other, cool. moving across that's the horizon. Cool. It was really cool. And they successfully brought it back, and, and, you know, and, and everything, you know, everything worked out just great. So that's another feather in the cap for, uh, for Mr. Lowe. I love it. Well, I, I I love it. I'm so thrilled that you knew who he was, and just it was such a neat a neat little fun fact for me. And um, anyway, I don't want to take up any more of your time. It was just fun talking to you, and I'm just so oh, happy you heard of it, David Lowe. Uh, absolutely, it just it brought back a flood of memories and just very very pleasant ones. And uh, you know, I, I you know he, he he obviously made some really great contributions. And uh, it was it was it was a privilege for me to be able to cover like you know that piece of American history that we're just never going to see again. And you know, yeah, I I know I that your 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 brother could probably you know walk into a crowded room and and and, and people wouldn't know who he was because like at the time they uh, astronauts used to call it you know their 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 brand of fame the kind of fame you put on and take off because if he's standing mm-hmm. there in a nice mm-hmm. business suit no one would know him but if he wore the blue flight coveralls with you know embroidered <laughs> right. space patches all over it, everybody's oh my gosh it's an astronaut and they want to get a picture with him and stuff so 
you know, yeah, it, 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 it was it's something that they just dealt with all the time. Yeah. Well, I'll let you go, but I thank you for taking my call, Jennifer. Well, you're quite welcome, Jennifer. Glad you could call in. Hey, and I learned something new about you. That's pretty fascinating. All right, you have That's a good That's great. Day. Yeah. But keep listening. Okay. Okay, I will. Thank All you. All right. Okay. Uh-huh, bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, that was an interesting surprise. It was. It was. Yeah. The the, the fact that astronauts, you know, yeah. If if you if you ask kids who's the first man to walk on the moon, they'll say, oh, Neil Armstrong, Neil Armstrong. They'll say who's the second man to walk on the moon, like, oh, Buzz Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin. You say who's the fifth, and all of a sudden the room just kind of goes silent because, like, you know. Being an astronaut used to make you really, really famous. I mean, like when you were one of the Mercury ones, your picture was on Life magazine. Everybody knew your, 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 your name, your wife's name, your dog's name. By the, time you, by the time you get to David Lowe, who flew in space several times and made significant contributions, I mean, just, you know, no one, unfortunately, just you know, knows who these folks are. And it's a real shame. I mean, one time I was talking to, um, oh, my gosh, it was Mark Garneau. He was the, he's the Neil Armstrong of Canada the very first Canadian to go into space, and I was interviewing him for, uh, for NPR, and it, that's just radio, so you hear him, but you don't see him, and he's, he's standing there in a nice pair of slacks and a business, uh, business shirt and a tie, and he looks really nice, and we're, we're talking for a few minutes about his next flight, and then we wrap up, and then one of, his, uh, one, one of the, the press people from NASA walks up to, 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 to Mark and says, oh, Mark, CNN wants to talk to you on camera offside, outside. I'm not kidding. He had a duffel bag with him. And he was like Superman running into the phone booth to change because he ran into the first office he could find, slammed the door. Two minutes later, he comes out in the bright blue uh, uh, flight suit with his NASA patches all over. And he's kind of like, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. And they go outside and they do their their CNN thing. And it it, it gets back to that notion, you know, being an astronaut, it's fame you you put on and it's fame you take off. Wow, no kidding. Well, you, you know, even Marilyn Monroe said she could be or not be her. She could just somehow not be noticed or then turn to somebody and say, do you want to see me be her? And something would come over, and then people would recognize her. But yeah, that's heard that, in a, yeah. a, a different way. Yeah, but, wow. but this Absolutely. is a whole different thing. It's like if you don't have the costume, it's, it's I mean, the costume, or which is a, a pretty uh, – Big one, <laughs> very, mm-hmm. very, fairly unique one in this case, the the coveralls and the space uniform. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, because, you know, when you see, you know, John Glenn or um, someone, Wally Sherrod would be on, on magazines or on TV and stuff. Uh, but nowadays, yeah, you're right. We don't really oh, know. We don't really well, see. So I can imagine him going and doing his phone, his uh, phone booth, Clark Kent. Oh sure. It was like one one time because you know, once once a year they'd have a family picnic at the Kennedy Space Center and they would have a chili co- uh, contest. And I mean the people there really they take their chili seriously. I mean they they would have teams and the teams would have T-shirts and they would like you know they have secret recipes and all that sort of stuff and they would have judges and the judges would be a combination of either astronauts or or people that that NASA knew about and 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 a couple of times they they ran out of celebrities and they said hey Pat would you mind coming being a chili judge. And I'm kind of like, you know, oh, that's fine. You know, it's kind of like it's a reach out, you know, community outreach kind of a thing. And so, you know, one time I did it, and I sat down, and next to me sat Fred Hayes from Apollo 13. On the other side was Eileen Collins, the first woman to command a space shuttle mission. Mark Garneau, the guy that did the Superman change with CNN. And, uh, and, and Bob Crippen, who was the commander of, well, he was the pilot of the first space shuttle mission and uh, commanded the next three. And so, you know, that was one year. The next year, 
I was, they asked me to come back, and there was a gentleman sitting by himself under this tent. Nobody was paying attention to him. Nobody walked up to him. And I took a look closer, and I was like, oh, my God, that's astronaut John Young. I mean, he, he, he walked on the moon during Apollo 16, commanded the first launch of the space shuttle, and he's sitting there. You know, nobody knows who it is except me, so naturally I went up and struck up a conversation with him. But he wasn't being mobbed by people. There weren't, you know, autograph seekers or people, you know, asking for selfies or anything like that. He was just kind of there by himself waiting to, to taste the chili. Oh. <laughs> it's got to be times like this, you know, when, first of all, being asked to be the uh, the what honorary astronaut judge and and the, and the moments like that you've got to feel like you're just incredibly blessed i would think that was like lead, leading a magic life well uh, you, you mean you, you're obviously referring to you're not referring to me are you <laughs> you know i am <laughs> oh okay well I'll, I mean, to be honest with you it was it was it was a privilege it was it was it was a it was a great privilege to be able to you know to watch this stuff because like you know not everybody got to see a shuttle blast off and I got to do it 103 times and you literally I mean particularly at night for example when they would launch at night because when the because you have the uh, the shuttle you know up against the external fuel tank and the two booster rockets on either side when the booster rockets would ignite it's like it's like daylight instantly. And just you know, it would, it would take, and, and then when the rumble reaches you, I mean, you're you're about the press side is about three miles away from the launch pad. Any closer, and then the shock wave would kill you basically. So when the when the the rumble actually reaches you, it just it almost like it just just burns into your breastbone. This 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 rumble, and and really when I'm doing the the, the uh, we do live coverage back then, I would have to lift my microphone up off. The, the desk that I was working at because the whole area would just be just rumbling as the shuttle would pull away. And to see that 103 times and all that NASA accomplished during that time, the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope, I was there mm-hmm. for that. Uh, as soon as they turned it on, it turned out that the thing was virtually blind. It couldn't see because NASA didn't have enough money to be able to test the main mirror on Hubble. So, okay, what are you going to do about that? Everybody's gunning for NASA's head and all that sort of stuff. So they say, okay, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We can't go up and tinker with it. So what we're going to do is we just took a look at how blind or what blurry images they were able to get. And then they designed a small pickoff mirror the size of a nickel. And they put it inside one of the replacement boxes that astronauts could slide in and out of Hubble during a repair mission. And then they sent up astronauts in these heavy, you know, white pressure suits to float outside and it's almost like you know these these gloves are just so thick and bulky and it's like you know handling your your grandma's prized plates when you're when you're walking around like this wearing boxing gloves mm-hmm. and so they had to do that and slide that box in and position that mirror exactly otherwise a one and a half billion dollar telescope would just be a really big paperweight in orbit nasa would look pretty stupid and they did it and being able to see stuff like that was just you know just pretty amazing yeah, it's, I would just be it was so awe-inspiring because you, it hasn't been seen before. You don't know who or when when that will be seen again. That's like true. that, that was one of those what they call a no do-over moment. That's it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Shot, and, 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 and well, well, there was one astronaut that that worked on Hubble on a, on a later mission, 
And he, he was realizing that every 12-year-old on Earth was kind of looking over his shoulder because Hubble was like more famous than the astronauts because it would send down these beautiful pictures of stars and galaxies and kids in classes would just be, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, they would just be enthralled by it. And so Mike Fole, the astronaut, I was talking to him about a later repair mission. He was scared to death because they had to take out the main computer of Hubble and put in a new one. And again, he's wearing the big bulky white suit with the boxing glove gloves on. And he says, oh, Mike, and back, it's like, you know, if this doesn't work, every every 12-year-old on Earth is just going to come gunning for him. And it worked out fine. <laughs> but it was just, you know, the, the feats that they did. And then the last time they repaired Hubble, they actually rewired some of the, the electronics up wearing these heavy gloves. Like before, they would slide apart in, slide apart out. For the last mission, they literally rewired it, and it worked. And just, you know, it's just kind of like, can you top that, NASA? And they kind of go up and they do it. And it's just, it was, it was, it was, certainly, it was certainly fun to cover. It was, a, it was a good way to spend, you know, a total of like 22 years. And magnificent. And I'm so glad that you've, um, that you've written at least two books so far. I hope you'll have more coming forward so that, because you're giving us a, a bit of an, uh, I don't know, like participant observer almost or uh, uh, look at things. But let me ask you this first. Oh, but first of all, if you're listening live and you want to talk to Pat Duggins, call in 646-716-9922, which Blog Talk Radio assures me is a free, it's a toll-free call in the continental U.S. So, uh, 646-716-9922. Although most of my listeners are in the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and some in Kazakhstan, where um, I don't know how uh, um, how I got over there. But although my husband works in uh, satellite communications, I know a lot of the uh, launches of satellites are from are done from Kazakhstan. So I don't know. Oh, Maybe I, that's I, it. Not, not to, no not to interrupt, Jennifer, yeah. but yeah, most of most of the most of the man launches by the Russian space program are done from Kazakhstan. So it's like you know, so. Hello to everybody over there on 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 the on the steps of Kazakhstan because a, a lot of what went on uh, for the Russian space program was right there. Oh, and and uh, yeah, in Kazakhstan. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's great. When um, so many other things I want to ask you about, and I don't, I know I don't have much time with you left, and, and you've been so generous already. But when you first started, so there are always going to be some people. And, and you can just take whichever one of these questions you want to start with. Uh, questions that, that I often hear, or sometimes people would hear, like, well, what what good did it do? There's somebody went to the moon, they walked on it, they walked outside of a space shuttle. You know, did it did it give us any kind of technological advances here? What did it do for us? Or the same thing with, you know, checking out Mars. Um, and then there's also the, the matter of moving into uh, what happened when – uh, or when private companies began to uh, get the idea to start building uh, rockets sure. to go into space. Uh, well, so I'll tell you what, start anywhere. In the, I know. Oh, go ahead. Absolutely. Well, let, let's take those one at a time. As far as what we got out of uh, NASA, there, there was one, there was one member of Congress. Now, admittedly, he you know he was from Central Florida, which meant that you know Kennedy Space Center was in his backyard. But he always used to say that. The greatest number of technological achievements in the United States occurred either when we went to space or when we went to war. So pick. Ah. 
And so basically, mm. I mean, uh, the, 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 number, the number of, uh, of technical advances, they're easier to spot back during the days of Project Apollo because it's kind of like, you know, when Thomas Edison did his thing, uh, needs were pretty obvious. I mean, we needed light at night. We needed to be able to, you know, to, 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 to speak with people or, or, you know, over great distances. So th- those, those were pretty obvious. One of the earliest uh, advances, I guess, that everybody would probably be able to identify with, and it's, 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 it's a low-tech one, but just for the sake of conversation, would be WD-40. Uh, WD-40, actually, you know, people might use that on squeaky hinges or, or, or stuck doorknobs, but actually it was developed uh, in California to, for use on Atlas rockets. Because the uh, when they when they when the, the they launched these rockets they were right next to the ocean and because of that you were getting a lot of salt spray and there was a lot of corrosion on the outside of the rocket casings that could cause the rockets to fail so this company started coming up with uh, a water dispersion formula because the, the 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 humidity would get in the fuel lines of these rockets and so they said okay why don't we come up with a chemical that makes the water go away so they tried water dispersion formula number one didn't work they tried number two didn't work they tried three four five six seven eight they went to 39 it didn't work but finally the water dispersion formula number 40 wd-40 actually was the one that worked and that was all because of atlas rockets and then you know you, you've got other things such as you know like you know miniaturizing computers um delivering medicine to people in in, in difficult places uh, water purification when you go up to the space station I mean, you can't fly up water easily and cheaply, so what they did was they came up with a water purification system that's now being used in areas of third world countries that can't, you know, get water easily. And so what it does is, okay, here's another, it's going to get graphic here, Jennifer, I'm sorry, but what it does is it takes urine Uh and it purifies it to the point that you can drink it. And so on the space station, they don't make any bones about it. They've literally got the bathroom next to the purifying system, next to the galley. So there's absolutely no, you know, uh, mistake, mistaking A to B to C on how that system works. And it was, it was perfected and used on the space station and is benefiting people here on Earth. So, you know, there are, there are a lot of complaints about the cost of, spa- of space travel, a lot of the dangers, not only for, you know, spacecraft that blow up, but I mean, like they had astronauts go up there for like a year in orbit aboard the space station, and it did impact their their their, their physical systems, their 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 bodies. So there's there's always people say there's there's pluses. There are always people that say that there are minuses, and it's just you know uh, whether or not you choose to go. And uh, up up to this point, we've chosen to go, but you know democracies get to pick, and they they get to make those choices. And I, I can go on to that second question too, but I don't want to blather on. Okay, and and what the second one was. Um... Uh, sorry, about private companies, absolutely. If, 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 you've, yeah. if you've ever been subjected to the movie 2001: A Space Odyssey, if anybody's dragged you to see it, and I've dragged Mrs. Duggins many a time to see it, uh, <laughs> you'll know that at the beginning of it, there's a space station run by Hilton, and a, a space shuttle that flies from Earth to orbit that was run by the well, the now defunct Pan Am, but back in the day, Pan Am Airlines was like you know a big a big you know, a big deal, you know, for flying from place to place. Mm-hmm. So even back in the mid-1960s, Arthur C. Clarke uh, looked at the notion of in low-Earth orbit, we would have private companies making money doing this and that and this and that, and then sending astronauts off to far-flung places. That would be the role of the governmental space program. So we're sort of doing that now. Uh, there are, you know, with, with, uh, you know, with uh, uh, SpaceX – and orbital, I mean, they're launching, you know, commercial payloads, you know, for money. 
Uh, but now you've got Elon Musk, who owns SpaceX, even talking about the possibility of sending people onto the planet Mars. And so it, 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 we started off with governments doing it back when it was us versus the Russians. But now we've got you know a couple of billionaires, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, that are talking about it. So then the debate could be, well, should a government could do this, should, do, should be doing this, or are we going to leave it up to a couple of billionaires with, you know, with a personal itch they want to scratch? Uh, again, we'll, we'll just see how it turns out. Any, any speculation on your part? Um, I think probably a combination of it would make more sense. See, the funny thing about it is, back in 1993, I was, I was talking to Alan Shepard about this, and uh, America's first man in space said, listen, forget going to Mars, forget going to the moon. If there's not an economic reason for us to do it, we're not going to do it. And his logic was inescapable because it is just immensely expensive to send people. You know, it's literally like to orbit, just orbit, costs upwards of $3,000 a pound to be able to send stuff up. Now, with more routine flights by SpaceX, they may be able to drive that cost down a little bit, but it was almost like $100,000 a pound just to send something to the moon. You can imagine what it would cost to send something to Mars. And once you get there, the big question is kind of like, okay, we're here, why? And there are a lot of people like, oh, we're explorers and we should do exploring. And it's kind of like, well, that's that's fine. I mean, you know, that's that's basically what Columbus did. I mean, you know, he went to, you know, he went to, uh, to Queen Elizabeth and, and King Ferdinand, and he said, give me the money to go to the new world, and I will convert the natives to Christianity, and I will bring you back gold and precious stones and all that sort of stuff. Well, he gave the natives smallpox, and he brought back potatoes and and, and tobacco. So if he had written that on his application for money to the queen and the king of Spain, do you think he'd have gotten the money? I don't think. So, so you know, it, 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 it's very expensive, and you just got to wonder what the payoff would be. What about the um, space station? Well, I was going to ask you about the, the International Space Station, but tell me, do you, what is the difference in different, um, well, different um, administrations in the White House and their attitude or tentative or support of the space program? Have you seen? Well, it's interesting, it, it's interesting yeah, because it has evolved. Because um, initially, um, you know, President Kennedy uh, wanted to use it kind of like as a, a, a great national achievement. You know, don't, you, know, you know, don't ask what you can do for your country. You know, ask what your country can do for you. What can you do for your country? Mm -hmm. And then he gave that great speech at Rice University. You know, we do this not because mm -hmm. it's easy, but because it's hard and all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. And then you get along to, um, like, President Nixon who basically was the one who pulled the plug on Apollo and said, okay, well, we're going to start building a, you know, the space shuttle. And at the time, NASA was going to build both a space shuttle and a space station. But the Nixon administration said, whoa, wait a second, you get your hands off my checkbook, son. We can have one or the other. And since you had to be able to get to the station in order to do anything, they figured, okay, we'll build the shuttle first. And then Gosh, 1981 was the first launch of the shuttle. 1998 was the first launch of the space station. You had that big gap where the shuttle is basically just doing these little cutie pie missions, flying around, you know, in orbit, doing very, very little. And then when you brought in Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton was the one who said, "Hey, why don't we turn the space program into a tool of of uh, diplomacy?" And that's when we started working with the Russians. Now, if we started, if we hadn't worked with the Russians, arguably we couldn't have built the space station because the Russians, when they realized there's no way that they were going to make it to the moon and have cosmonauts walking around on the moon, they decided to put all of their eggs in the basket of building space stations in Earth orbit. And by the time 
we started building the International Space Station, the Russians were really good at this. I mean, they'd launched a number of Salyut stations. Uh, we had docked the space shuttle to Mir. Uh, that's, that's another space station that was built in 86. That, I can tell you, turned NASA on its head because NASA had no idea how the Russians did business. Because, like, when, you know, when NASA puts together a space, uh, spacecraft or a space mission, they've got inspectors who inspect the inspectors who inspect the inspectors, and, you know, they piles and piles of, uh, of paperwork and stuff. And so when, they, when, when NASA first found out, okay, the president wants us to collaborate with the Russians on a bunch of missions to dock our shuttle to their space station Mir, we had to fly over to Moscow and see how they did stuff. And they'd walk into these warehouses where the, the space gear for Russia was being built, and you'd have parts laying everywhere. You'd have puddles of oil on the floor. You'd have no documentations. The Russians' attitude was kind of like, oh, time for the launch. Click, click, click. Here's your hardware. Go. And NASA freaked. They couldn't believe that they were actually doing that. But the Russian stuff worked. And so uh, uh, in, in, in my, I'm speaking from my office and uh, uh, my wife, bless her heart, when I finally earned my master's degree about six months ago, she took the, uh, the 11 mission press badges from all of those missions with Russia, where NASA teamed up with Russia, and I covered it, and, and framed them. And it's hanging up in my office right now. It completely turned NASA on its head as far as how to do things in space. But they wouldn't have been able to build the space station had they not learned those lessons from Russia. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> it is it is interesting how the, the just the different attitudes and how <laughs> things are made or the, or the different uh procedures or or maybe lack of procedures they're like that um space flight now tweeted uh today SpaceX plans to roll out the first Falcon heavy rocket to its launch pad in Florida next month but the cuff company says liftoff of the world's most powerful launcher will not occur until early next year. Uh, tell, tell us about this, what, what you know about this, the SpaceX Falcon Heavy. Oh, sure, absolutely. Well, the, the, the regular Falcon rocket can carry up like uh, satellites and carry uh, cargo, and there's a small uh, uh, capsule called Dragon that, uh, that, that currently delivers uh, uh, cargo to the International Space Station. Now, when Elon Musk first trotted out his, Fal his Falcon rocket and his Dragon uh, capsule, the first thing that I kind of noticed was, okay, this thing is built to carry cargo. Why does it have a porthole? And so I kind of <laughs> ran that past NASA, and it's kind of like, the last time I looked, I've never seen cargo having to look out a window, okay? So you knew even back then Elon <laughs> Musk had his sights set on manned spaceflight. And so with the Falcon Heavy, uh, he would be able to launch uh, – they're, they're building a manned version of the, of the capsule, which is a little bit – you know, it's a little dicier than, than just launching cargo because with, with the cargo, it's a one-way trip and it just goes up. So if your capsule falls into the atmosphere and burns up, well, that's not a really big deal. But if you happen to have astronauts in there with families who want to see them at the end of their flight, you know, you've got to be able to have the safety systems to make it work. So um, – that's something that he needs to iron out. There's also a rocket actually being designed here in Alabama, where I am, uh, that, uh, that NASA is building. It's called the Space Launch System, or the SLS, and uh, it, it, it will be bigger than the, than the Saturn V that sent men to the moon. And if it works, and they're hoping that it works, uh, it will send astronauts out of Earth orbit to go someplace else for the first time since 1972. And that, that's kind of the next big leap in terms of, like, 
do we go to the moon? Do we go to Mars? That new rocket that NASA is working on here in Alabama, that's, that's, that's the key to whatever you know, NASA's ambitions might be. Was uh, was the last Bush administration forty three? Was um, wasn't George W. Bush, President George W. Bush? Did he have a focus on on Mars or an interest in getting to Mars? Not not that he talked about a lot. The one thing that he did was he came up with something called Project Constellation. And uh, what that was was it was kind of like okay the space shuttle the space shuttle if you look at the, the 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 vehicle it had this big cavernous cargo bay right in back of the, uh, the 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 crew capsule where the astronauts all would sit and you could put things in there like the Hubble Space Telescope or the uh, the long duration exposure facility that George Lowe chased and retrieved you know on his uh, on his flight but once the space station was built there really wasn't a need for a spacecraft that big that could carry up big pieces of cargo because there was no cargo to carry up. So what, what, what Bush the Younger had in mind was something called Project Constellation, which a lot of people were kind of like, meh, we didn't think it was a really great idea because what he wanted to do was take one of the, uh, the, the solid rocket boosters that would launch the shuttle and put a manned Orion capsule on top of that one booster and blast that into space. And that's, you know, that's, that's what he wanted to do. Now, everybody at NASA got the heebie-jeebies over that because the booster rockets for the space shuttle use something called solid fuel. In other words, it's not liquid like the gas you put in your car. It's, it's, it, it looks like a, the, the fuel inside the, the booster rocket looks like a giant, a giant pencil eraser, basically. And the thing about it is, once it ignites, it doesn't unignite. You can't stop it. So once it launches, you're going to fly in one piece or several for several minutes, and there's nothing really you can do about it. So they were kind of worried about whether or not they would be able to control that vehicle if there was, an, if there was some kind of a problem. They couldn't shut it down. What do you do with the astronauts that are still on top in their capsule? So that whole thing kind of like went away when the Obama administration came in, and that's when uh, we just went ahead in 2011 to just you know finish the space shuttle program. Uh, all those space shuttles are now in museums, and then we started paying like $100 million, $100 million each for a seat for one of our astronauts to go up on Russian Soyuz vehicles. Don't tell me that didn't rankle Congress, but that's what we did, basically, until we come up with our own ability to send people up, whether it's Elon Musk's Dragon capsule, uh, Boeing is working on one, the, uh, the, the Starliner, which is kind of a, it almost looks like an Apollo capsule, and they would put those on top of Atlas V rockets, again, built here in Alabama, and uh, they would launch human beings on that. But we're just waiting for that next American ability to get into space. From from what from the information that's been brought back, um, just or the studies of Mars, do we at any point do we see that there could be a way for people to survive on Mars? I mean, I know this wouldn't be just some little simple trip to go up there for a few. I mean, if you're going, you'd have to be gone for what six months to get there. Or six, six months, months to get there, and then you'd have to wait a year for Earth and Mars to real, uh, realign, and then another six months to go back. It's funny you mentioned that. One of the most fun parts of trailblazing Mars was there was, there was an astronaut who, I, I, unless I'm mistaken, made more spacewalks at the time during the shuttle program than anybody else. His name was Jerry Ross. He was an Air Force colonel, really nice guy, and he was big into genealogy. And he and I got to talking one time, and he had mentioned that he had traced his, uh, his family tree back to a fellow named Daniel Dillabaugh, who was a Canadian, who after the Civil War wanted to go and mine silver in the Wind River Mountains of, of, of Wyoming. And I kind of looked at the life that Daniel Dillabaugh was leading there 
with 19th century technology and what people on Mars would face with 21st century technology. And the parallels were just so striking, I included it in the book. Because, you know, where he was, where Daniel Dillabaugh was in, you know, the 1860s in Wyoming, up in those mountains, you couldn't grow your own food because it was too cold. There wasn't enough uh, material to be able to build a house or a barn because the trees wouldn't grow. Uh, if you injured yourself, it literally was like two weeks on horseback to the nearest railroad depot. You literally had to survive by your wits and what you brought with you. And that's kind of what people going to Mars are going to face. There's no, there's no water that we know of on Mars, so you're going to have to figure that out. It's extremely cold, extremely arid. There's no, um, there's no magnetic field around Mars, kind of like Earth, so you've got constant bombardment of cosmic rays. It's a nasty place to live. It really is. And so what, 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 they're, what they're trying to do is figure out ways to keep people alive on a planet where you don't really have all that much in terms of natural resources. And I don't know if you've seen demonstrations of something called a 3D printer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, they're, they're thinking of sending 3D printers to Mars and scooping up Mars soil and with that being able to literally manufacture, you know, bricks for a house, bricks for a landing pad, uh, tools, uh, any, anything that you might need, you might be able to make out of, you know, Mars soil that way. But it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, back when Shackelford, you know, uh, did his uh, – uh, I hope I get this story right. He either went to the North Pole or the South Pole, but the point of it is there wasn't a whole lot – to, to do or to eat there. So instead of bringing, you know, a whole big old, you know, ship full of Pop-Tarts or whatever like that, he brought tools and he brought nails and he bought bullets. And with that, he was able to live off the land when he was doing his exploration. And if a Mars trip is going to have to work, uh, that's, that's, that's what NASA is going to have to do. They're going to have to figure out how to live off the planet where there's not a lot of resources to be had. <laughs> yeah. Oh, think about the 3D printer. Yeah, I think uh, oh, you're talking about uh, Ernest Shackleton. The, uh, yes, the other there we go. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. If, if, I, if I got yeah. his name wrong, and, I apologize to his descendants and all. And 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 I apologize as well, uh, just because I happen to be in the room. Um, I don't want to seem complicit in anything. When uh, oh, but you and you talk about the, the space uh, Odyssey. You know, I, I, as I said, I was a, such a, from an early age. I was such a big science fiction fan, and uh, mm-hmm. even after seeing the movie, I always wanted to, uh, still want to have a kitchen one day where when I go in to turn the coffee on, it just comes up and says, "The kitchen is uh, um, operational and fully functional." I want to hear Hal's voice tell me that. But Well, I can tell you one thing. At least I said the bad part of the end, okay? <laughs> oh, not at all, not at all. No, actually, when they, when they when they filmed that movie, they they went to Sweden, I think it was, and they got the uh, the for the guys on the the spaceship with Hal. What are you doing, Dave? Though those guys, uh-huh. they had uh, back in 1968, <laughs> the most futuristic uh, uh, flatware they could find was I think from Sweden, and they still sell it to this day. And one of these days, I'm going to talk Mrs. Duggins into letting us get it because even you know. 1968 was well, like 50 years later. It's like it's still just the coolest stuff in the world. And that was that was that was in the, that was in the galley where they uh, they uh, messed around with Hal the computer on 2001. I thought it was great anyway. <laughs> well, let me ask you this before you go. Oh, and by the way, folks, if you're listening, you know you can get uh, you can get Pat Duggan's books, uh, Trailblazing Mars, NASA's next giant leap, and 
Final Countdown, NASA and the End of the Space Shuttle Program on Amazon, or at your favorite booksellers. If it's not there, ask them to, to order it. And uh, Or you can listen to him um, on Alabama Public Radio. And so before I go... You know, I've got to ask you this. And first of all, thank you so much for being here with me, Pat. And for, oh, Jennifer, it was an absolute uh, pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure. You were delighted. And for uh, being so generous with your time here and information, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. But let me ask you this. If you had the opportunity to go into space, would you go and where would you want to go? Okay, to be honest with you, uh, Mrs. Duggins has to put a knife to my back to get me on the log flume ride at Disney World. So the notion of actually going is kind of like Zippo because it's like, you know, uh, I was talking to Norman Thaggard one time. He was the first astronaut to work aboard the Russian space station Mir. And he, he said, you know, you know what we do for a living is we kind of strap ourselves to a bomb and we blow ourselves into orbit. And he said, you know, there really has to be some degree of emotional immaturity there to do that. And, you know, his, 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 again, his, his logic was inescapable. So would I go? If somebody offered, yeah, I probably would. But there, there, there would be a very serious uh, uh, talk around the dinner table before I could, I could definitely sign on the dotted line. <laughs> Although I have gone on the vomit okay. comment. That was interesting, where you float around. All right, so put your down. No one at all. What a night. Hey. Okay. Even lightning, but no good at all. All right, well, thank you so much. Does but I do hope you'll come back to Madame Perry's salon soon. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And don't thank you. Good night. It's Take so care. Bye bye. Even Spider was afraid to bark. What a perfect chance to part. If you need Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.